This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio. Welcome to Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM Channel 132. I'm Ann Greenhall, Deputy Executive Director of the Ann and John McNulty Leadership Program here at Wharton, and I am flying solo because my dear colleagues Jeff Klein and Mike Yuseem are off for the day. But listeners, you are in for a treat because we are live today. We are live, and in more than that, we have an in-studio guest, and my in-studio guest is a man of many accomplishments, including CEO and serving on board of directors, philanthropist, writer, and he is Stan Silverman, who has written a new book, and his book is called Be Different, The Key to Business and Career Success. So I'm going to jump right in and welcome Stan to the show. Stan, welcome to to our show today. Yeah, thank you, Ann. <laughs> Thanks for inviting me to be on your show. Well, it's a pleasure. And let me just say just a little bit more about you, and then I'm going to invite listeners to uh, try to get a word in edgewise today and call in. Stan is the former president and CEO of a global P- of global PQ corporation as and has spoken on leadership here at the Wharton School and also at the LeBeau College of Business at Drexel University, where he holds the position of senior executive in residence. Stan is also the vice chairman of Drexel University's Board of Trustees and former chairman of Drexel University's College of Medicine. Stan serves on the boards of three K-12 independent schools, and Stan is also a member of the faculty of Board Advisory Services of the National Association of Corporate Directors. So listeners, if you have a question for a man who's been a leader his whole lifetime, please feel free to join the show, and that's 1-844-946-7866. 844 Wharton. Join me in the conversation. So Stan, I had the pleasure of reading even a draft of your book, which is an honor. And I also have in my hand a signed copy. So I've had an opportunity to look through your book on more than one occasion. And because I know you as someone who has both experience, knowledge, and something that I prize, which is wisdom. I'm just going to draw attention to a couple of the, I noticed that you have a couple of key words in your, in your book. And if I can, I'm going to try to rattle a few of them off. All right. So the key words to Stan's new book, leadership, leader, manager, COO, CEO, director, tone, tone at the top, trust, culture, ethics, integrity, continuous improvement, emotional intelligence, comfort zone, lone wolf, Ownership, tyrant, preferred provider, customer experience, personal brand, network, attitude, career success, whistleblower, hotline, entrepreneurship, (laughs) great, toxic boss, and toxic organization, tone deaf, and customer service. All right. Wow. (laughs) All right. There's a lot to be gleaned, but I'm going to give you a participant's choice. So of all those key words, where would you want to start? Well, let me start with tone at the top. I love it. Okay. Because I think I've probably talked about tone uh, two or three dozen times throughout the book. 
Uh, in my experience, successful organizations are successful because the leader has great turn, tone at the top, mm. establishes a great culture, uh, encourages their people to develop a sense of ownership in what they do, develops future leaders by pushing uh, their people outside of their comfort zone, uh, has strong emotional intelligence, um, which mm. uh, is, is really what takes you to the top. Uh, IQ and technical skills are really the uh, threshold uh, characteristics of any person joining any organization that gets you in, but what's, what moves you up is in emotional intelligence. Yeah. And I wrote the book um, because I felt there was a lack of uh, information out there about how do you succeed as a business and how do you succeed as an individual? And so having written for the Philadelphia Business Journal and 42 sister publications for mm -hmm. a number of years, I decided that the, the, the one key is businesses need to be different. Individuals yeah. need to be different. Mm -hmm. And how is a business different? A business is different by being on a journey to become the preferred provider of product or service in their marketplace so everybody wants to buy from them and not their competition. So I talk about how to be different as a business. I call that the holy grail of any business. In mm -hmm. fact, I start, off, I start off my presentations usually by asking the audience, what is the holy grail of any business? And I get a lot of answers, but not exactly what I want. I, I get the answers that are in support of Mm -hmm. becoming the preferred provider. Mm -hmm. And for all of us, as we climb our careers, we need to be different than our peers in a positive way so that when the next promotion comes or there's a job available on the outside, we're the ones that get selected for that job because we're different than our competition applying for that job. And that's essentially the essence of the book. Oh, so good. So you've you've packed a wallop already in a short period of time. So let me go back and ask you, because I know that you can. Uh, can you give me an example of tone at the top that was, uh, without naming names, that was negative and had just ramifications for the organization and for the business? Yes. Um, in fact, there, there are a number of uh, my examples or my experiences. Um, I used to work for a tyrant. And he had terrible tone at the top. In fact, when I wrote my first article for the Business Journal about this individual, I wanted to call uh, this individual a terrorist. And my editor at, at the Business <laughs> Journal, Craig, I said, no, 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 no. He says, you can't, can't call him a terrorist because of the connotation today. Yeah. And I said, well, of course. So what should I call him? So he's thinking for like three or four seconds, he's call him a tyrant. Mm -hmm. So that's that's what I call uh, this individual. Mm -hmm. um, he micromanaged everybody, mm -hmm. uh, wouldn't let anybody make decisions, would lash out at people in meetings. Uh, mm -hmm. And instead of going one-on-one -on -one and giving feedback to that individual in private, he would lash out in public. He would mm -hmm. belittle the people. Um, he would do everything possible to undermine uh, your confidence in the business. We lost a lot of people. Uh, I stayed. Uh, I finally mm -hmm. learned how to um, to deal with, with that individual by basically walking out on him when he was screaming and yelling at me and telling him that when you've calmed down, come down to my office, we'll talk about this. And six, uh, six minutes later, he came down and we solved the problem. Did I, you report to him at that time? I reported to him. I eventually got promoted to be his equal uh, when I was promoted to be president of our Canadian company at the age of 36, mm. spent three years as president of our Canadian company, came back as his boss, ah. as worldwide president of our industrial mm. chemicals group, and within weeks I fired him uh, because he was la he continued to lash out at people. 
And I found, in addition to celebrating for a week because <laughs> this individual is no longer there. <laughs> the Wicked Witch is dead. <laughs> <laughs> there's a whole story about that, too. We won't go into that okay. right now. Um, I found the very best leader I could within the company to run that division. Uh, and it took that individual probably six to nine months to get these folks to start making decisions again, to start having trust in their leadership, mm-hmm. uh, to start uh, taking risks Mm-hmm. Not being afraid to uh, to make a mistake, learning how to de-risk their decisions so they're not going to sink the division or the company, and this individual turned that division around. And my the impact on me, uh, I'm kind of glad I work. I'm glad I worked for him because I learned a whole lot about not what to do, and it's the basis of my style mm-hmm. today. I sit on every audit committee of every board that I sit on. I've sat on three public company boards. I sit on private, private equity trade association boards. I sit on nonprofit boards. I sit on the audit committee to hear what comes in on the hotline. And if there's a report there's a, there's a tyrant in the system beating up their people, I want to know what the CEO is going to do about it. I'm holding them accountable for it. And I'm the only mm-hmm. one that does that. Mm-hmm. Um, and when we... Uh, evaluate the performance of the CEO in addition to evaluating that individual on financial performance. I want to evaluate that individual on tone at the top and culture. And Mm -hmm. what do they do when they have a tyrant reporting to them? Because to me, it's unacceptable. Oh, so good. So now I just want to go back because I think this is something that our listeners could really relate to and and appreciate. Uh, It's very possible that a good number of our listeners have reported to a tyrant. So can you say a little bit more about what gave you the the courage and the insight to, you know, to speak up and just say, you know, basically time out when you're ready to talk to me, just come to my office, which is also a kind of a power move. It wasn't I'll come back to your office. You come to my office. So right. say a little more about that, Stan, because, you know, I'd like to have that kind of courage. <laughs> well, and this is, this is a lesson for everybody when they work for tyrants. First of all, you've got to do your job and do it well. Right. And be aware that this individual is going to smother you with questions and looking into what you're doing. And ra- rather than, you know, a great leader basically sets uh, expectations, negotiates goals, makes sure that that individual has the resources and cuts them loose to do their thing. Mm-hmm. A tyrant is the op- exact mm-hmm. opposite of that. And so I had built up so much social and political capital within a company, I was not fireable. I, oh, felt, I, felt, I felt I was not fireable Ooh. because I had done so many good things. I had such a great track record of success. Mm-hmm. And I helped a lot of people, a lot of executives who I didn't report to solve their problems. And I was kind of the integrator. I brought people together. Mm -hmm. And I just, you know, it was probably the eighth or tenth time he's yelling and screaming. I just felt, I'm not going to take it anymore. Yeah. Just like in the movie. Right. You know, I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. And I I did what I did. That changed the dynamic between us forevermore. He never screamed at me again. Ever. Yeah. He treated me with respect. Mm. I almost left the company, actually. Before that incident, uh, I was thinking of leaving. I was talking with uh, with search firms on the outside. I decided to stick it out. Had I left... Now, just why? Why did you decide to stick it out under those circumstances? Because people would understand why you left. I had built a great career, mm-hmm. and I had a lot of political and social capital within okay. the company. The company was growing. Everybody liked me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it was... Probably my eighth. I went through 11 jobs, 11 promotions. So I think this was probably my seventh or eighth to this position. 
And so I didn't want to give that up. I wanted to tough it out. Had I left, mm-hmm. the company would have lost a future CEO that took ah. earnings took <laughs> earnings from 14 to $43 million during the five-year period between 2000 and 2005, including uh, the recession, horrible recession of 2002, which followed 9-11. Mm. And so this is a lesson for all senior leaders. Mm-hmm. Never allow bad leaders or bad management below you to drive out young people because someday they could be the CEO of your company that delivers mm-hmm. great results. And so you have to, it's it's a weakness not to take care of a tyrant, not mm-hmm. to do something about them. And I'm the example. Yeah. I am the example. So good. All right. Let me remind our listeners that you are listening to Leadership in Action on Sirius XM Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Ann Greenhall, and I'm here in studio live speaking with Stan Silverman about his new book called Be Different, The Key to Business and Career Success. So, Stan, you stood up to the tyrant, and that readjusted, that recalibrated the relationship. And from then on, he taught, he treated you with respect. Yes. Okay. And then you went on to um, another position that was equal his. Yes. He continued to treat you with respect. Did you have any impact as a peer on his behavior because no. I asked no <laughs> no ah, I was hoping no hoping. sorry I, I, okay because we no. see this also in organizations where we may be peers with others who are tyrants and we might try to have an impact on their behavior but you you have little hope of our of our efficacy in this regard uh, my, my experience is if you are young in your career, if the individual is uh, early in their career, mm-hmm. they're, they're changeable. Yeah. They are learning. They're yeah. a couple of years out of school. They need to be taught how to be a leader, how to be an effective leader. But you get somebody that's fairly advanced in their career and has been around a long time, you're not going to change them because that's their style. And that has been successful for them. It's worked. For all these years. But I also can tell you, that I have never seen, I have never, ever seen over my 40 decades of doing this, serving on 14 boards and being my own you know, the CEO of, of my company, I have never seen a leader that has those characteristics that ever made it to the end without being disgraced and being kicked out, ever, ever, <laughs> ever. Oh, so good. Well, because there's the organization, <laughs> somebody in the organization will find a mm-hmm. way to get rid of them. Mm-hmm. All right. So now we're going to talk about that a little bit. So you were a peer and then you rose up and this uh, tyrant then reported to you. Yes. Okay. So now, did you try to rehabilitate? No. No. <laughs> okay. Actually, I was just waiting for the t- for the opportunity to fire the person because <laughs> I knew I wasn't going to. You knew. You I, knew. I was just waiting. You knew he was. I was waiting. He or get, she was sufficiently ingrained. Right. He had okay. to get off on you know go off crazy on somebody, and that was my excuse to march into the CEO's office, who I reported to, and just say I'm going to do it. Actually, I was turned down the first time, and uh, the second time, two weeks later, I said, Look, "This I'm, is it. I'm going to do it." He said, "Okay." So it was the CEO who held you back the first time. So, you know, just curious why. Was it that this person was otherwise a high performer? It was just the inter... No. Well, okay, okay, so what was the deal? You don't have to name names, but what was the deal? I I, I wish I knew. I wish I knew why the CEO and my board didn't protect us uh, in the organization from a tyrant. Yeah. And I still wonder about that. Um, the CEO certainly knew. The board may have not known, mm-hmm. but some of the members of the board probably knew. Yeah. And that's why whenever I serve on a board, 
this is my focus. My yeah. focus is to get rid of tyrants mm -hmm. because they destroy the people below them and it's bad for the company. Mm -hmm. We're not developing leaders. We're not going to go to, we're not going to generate the results in mm -hmm. terms of growth or in terms of um, uh, our, our goals to, uh, to reach customer uh, service or, or customer delight levels. We're just not going to do that. People mm -hmm. are not going to make decisions when they work for a tyrant and you have to have people empowered to make decisions and have a sense of ownership in what they do. So, all right. So now, all right, we're going to go to the last step here, and then I promise I'll take another turn here. Okay. But now you are have the opportunity to fire this person. So how do you how do you handle that? Again, listeners, I think you know we're, we're sometimes in this position. Even I have had to let people go. So any any thoughts, tips, or advice about that? Either what you did and what you might do the same or differently. And I've I've terminated many people. Uh, because I've had to because they weren't performing uh, or because the business took a different turn and uh, we, they just, we just needed to make a change. But normally when I terminate somebody, I do it very, very humanistically. Mm -hmm. I say, you know, in a week or two or three or a month, we're going to part company. I use the word, we're going to part company, and this is why, so let's talk about mm -hmm. it. Why don't you go home, talk to your spouse, um, Come in tomorrow. Let's talk about how we're going to do a transition. Let's write your, your announcement together that you're going to be departing. And I handle it very, very humanistically. Uh, for most of the time, I put them in my networks, and I hook them up with other CEOs, and I help them get other jobs. There's one individual. I help get three subsequent jobs. So we remain friends. So you, always, you never want to burn bridges. Mm. Uh, on either side of the table. And so you, you do it. Hey, it's not personal. It's business. Right. It's business. Yeah. With this individual, I just went in and say, you're fired. And this is why. <laughs> okay. And, and this I, want is you, why. I want you out today. <laughs> okay. It's the only time I've ever done that. Yeah. <laughs> but everybody else is very humanistic. And I remain friends. You, you talk to, you, you have to have the ability to talk with these people later on. They can help you. You can help them. That's right. Never uh, burn bridges. No, I'm, I'm with you on that. Uh, all right. So now you now did you go through a search to put a new person in place or was it obvious who could, you know, or seemingly obvious who could step into this role? It, normally you would you would spend time searching for the individual. But I had an individual in mind. So you never want to in this case, I didn't want to make a move without knowing the second move. Yeah. Uh, and, and I couldn't I didn't want to take the time to have that spot open because of the condition of the division and the people in the division. They mm -hmm. needed leadership right away. Mm -hmm. And uh, this individual was my close colleague. Uh, he, he actually followed me uh, to Canada, so uh -huh. he replaced me, um, in, uh, or subsequent, actually, after he had uh, taken this job over. A couple years later, I moved him to Canada. So I, I knew uh, that he would do the job, and mm -hmm. he did a great job. Okay. And then now now talk, now we've got a leader at the top who has the tone at the top. And so the person you've put in place has the technical skills and also the emotional intelligence to lead, to lead the organization. You said it took at least six to nine months to get people below to begin to trust and to, ha to build a more positive culture. Can you detail that a little bit? What sorts of steps did your colleague take in order to build a positive organization? Yeah, so for, for any leader uh, to build a, um, a credible leadership position so that people follow them, they need to, need to do a couple of things, and this individual did them all. 
number one, you have to be consistent with your people. They need to be able to read you. Mm. Um, we could never read the tyrant. We never knew whether he'd go left or right, left or right. And so when we're making a decision down you know, in the business, we don't know if it's consistent with the direction that the individual mm. wanted to go. So you need yeah. to be consistent yeah. and people need to be able to read you. Mm-hmm. You need to be able to talk to people. Um, and walk around and just say how things going. Mm-hmm. And you never give orders to people because that could violate the chain of command. But mm-hmm. if you walk around and talk with people and you act like a human being and just one of the, you know, one of the, the folks uh, working for the company, they'll tell you what they think if they, if they trust you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other thing you need to do is you need to show that you're building, helping people build a sense of ownership in what they do. Yeah. And I have a story later on, perhaps, for the interview, when I can yeah. talk about how I learned that. I was taught that by an hourly person in the Toronto plant. <laughs> and it actually uh, impacted me for the rest of my career. Um, so you also help people get out of their comfort zone. I also have a story on that. So he would do that. He would push people to, to take risks, say, hey, why don't you try this? You know, we'll help you, but, you know, well, go and do it. And so he broadened out folks' um, expectations of what they could have possibly accomplish and therefore and made them happy. You know, hey, I'm going to get up this morning and I'm going to go to work and do this great thing. Oh, so great. So that's what he did. And that's what every great leader does. Oh, Stan, you've said a lot. So let me be a good student here. <laughs> so four things that he that he did well. And one was just to be consistent. Yes. You knew when you walked in that the person you saw left yesterday was the same person you're going to see today. Yes. Not take a hard right or a hard left unexpectedly. He also just talked to people <laughs> one-on-one. And he listened to and people. And he listened. Yes. And he listened. He gave people a sense of ownership over their work so that they had an investment and commitment to the job. And finally, he gave he gave them opportunities to go a little bit out of their comfort zone, what we would call here in the leadership biz, you know, gave them an opportunity for that stretch experience. So, um, and I know you well enough to know that you have good stories for all of them, but let's go to the one on ownership. So t- tell me, how did you learn that lesson? It's my favorite story because oh, it was Please most, tell it. It was the most impactful to me. <laughs> and so I'm president of our Canadian company, and we had a small production unit that made a product for the high-temperature, high-acid-resistant uh, fra- refractory industry. It was sold out. Uh, the business was growing, and it was being produced on a small production unit, which required a lot of overtime. We hadn't put any capital into this unit in like 10 years and so um, I got to go to our marketing people, and we said, you know, we need, to, we need to expand this unit. And it's a small unit, and we figured that for the next couple of years, we should probably shoot for a 50% increase in capacity. And I'm thinking this project's a $500,000 project because it's such a small, a small unit. But rather than call the engineers in to, to engineer this thing and develop the scope, engineers only want to work on you know, multi-million dollar projects because that's how they get promoted by doing a good job <laughs> on complex, big projects, right? <laughs> and so my plant manager and I decided that we would ask Luigi Paolini, who was the operator of that unit, to ask him, well, how do you think we should expand the unit? So we call him into my office and he says, am I going to be fired? Oh, <laughs> oh, Luigi, why do you think that? He says, I'm, I've never been to your office. No, 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 no. We're not going to fire you. We have a question to ask you. You've been working really hard on a unit. We want to spend money to expand the, the capacity of the unit. How do you think we should do it? He said, well, I know how. Nobody's ever asked me. I know exactly how to do it. Well, okay. 
why don't you develop the scope and let us know what it should be? He said, well, I'll do it, but I, I need the help of a mechanic in the plant. And so very cavalierly, we said, well, pick your man, Luigi. So he picks Don McNeil. <laughs> and Don McNeil is the best mechanic in the plant. However, he's the worst with respect to, to labor, union, uh, a union uh, management relationships, always oh. wanting to fi- file grievances. <laughs> and being a negative opinion leader in the plant with his union brother. And so I'm thinking, oh, my God, this is going to be a huge disaster. Well, we, we, we told Luigi he could pick his man, so we're not going to take that back from him. So Luigi says, I'll talk to Don tomorrow, and I'll ask him. And I said, well, we'll talk to him in the afternoon to make sure that you know he's okay with this. So we talked to Don in the afternoon, the following day. And Don says, I'm going to do this for Luigi because he's my friend. I'm not doing it for you. Just understand that mm-hmm. I'm doing it for Luigi. I said, okay, if you'll do it, fine. And they go about working. And they within like three weeks, they present the scope of what they're going to do to expand the unit. And this is before PowerPoint. It's the overhead slide. Yes, you know, yeah, of, transparency. Most of our right. listeners probably don't know what that is because right. they're so young. <laughs> and I'm thinking, this is the most creative thing I've ever seen. And Don McNeil did something we did not ask him to do. He cost-estimated the project to $260,000, and I'm guessing five hundred. And so we say to both of them, okay, you're now in charge. Well, it's not our job. You know, it's the job of a project manager. We said, look the unit's going to be down while you're doing it, so why don't you guys work on it and just manage the, the project? Okay, we'll do that. Three months later, the unit comes up. Within a week, they're at 50% increase in capacity, exactly what we told them. Within two weeks, they're at 63% increase in capacity. And the product is absolutely perfect. It The, the quality is tighter within the specification, and it's just humming along. And Don McNeil brings the project in at two hundred and fifty thousand dollars, ten thousand less than what he told us. And I think he did that purposely <laughs> to show who, to show us right that he, he knew something that we didn't. And so all four of us fundamentally changed. So Don McNeil is now walking to the plant, telling his fellow uh, union brother, and you know they trusted me for what I could do with my mind, and oh, additional what I could do with my hands. Oh my God, so powerful. And Luigi changed in this way, and he changed me too. So. I'm taking a visitor through the entire plant. We stop at his production unit. And he says, I'll take the visitor for the tour. I said, okay. So he tours the production unit, and then we walk on through the rest of the plant because we had like six other production units in the, in the plant. The next day, Luigi says to me, do you know why I did what I did yesterday? I said, no. He says, I took the visitor through my production unit. I said, yeah. He says, I did it because this is my unit, not your unit. This is my <laughs> unit. I'm thinking... We've created a sense of ownership in Luigi for yeah. his unit. And from then on, everything just went up. Oh, so great. Improvement. So that fundamentally changed my view and my plant manager's view. So four of us changed. And I'm thinking, how come 15 years ago when I started my career, nobody taught me this? And how come mm-hmm. I didn't learn this? I had to be taught by an hourly guy. They're, yeah. they're teaching the president. So this is a great lesson. So whether you're the CEO or the president or the chairman, whoever you are, you can always learn things from everybody within the company in addition to the guy running your production unit. You know, you were consistent with Luigi. You told him that he could pick his colleague, the mechanic. He picked Don. <laughs> you were worried about Don because he had had, you know, negative negative attitude that was filtering through the organization. But you kept to your word. You were consistent. 
you also listened to him. You know, you gave him the opportunity to come up with a plan, and you listened and took into account what he said. He took ownership of it and proudly walked guests around and talked to it, talked about the shop as his shop. And you also gave him opportunity to go a little bit out of his comfort zone. He thought this was a job for a project manager, but no, guess what? Guess what, Luigi? You are the project manager. So in that that moment, you ticked off all of those principles of what it takes to be, um, you know, an effective an effective leadership leader. But I want to ask you now a little bit about how you learned to get out of your comfort zone. Yes, and uh, and everybody needs to uh, get out of their comfort zone and not do the same thing every single day because you learn and you grow when you do that. And if you're the, the leader, you need to encourage your people to get out of their comfort zone. So I have a great story. When I, <laughs> when I was a young a business manager for our company, I was the... Uh, uh, I had responsibility for anhydro, for our anhydrous sodium metasilicate business, which you don't have to know what that is. Let's call it ASM. And uh, Rome Polanc, which is a huge, was a huge French chemical company that also made this product, were dump, started to dump that product into the United States below their home market price. Ah. And they were taking uh, uh, they were taking market share and hurting us and the other producers of ASM within the United States. And so I went to our CEO and I said, uh, Paul, um, this is what's occurring. I think we should sue them for uh, in, the, in the International Trade Commission, Inter- a Court of International mm. Trade Commission, too, uh, for dumping. And we talked about it and he said, okay, um, why don't you talk to our corporate GC, uh, get your attorney on the outside and, and go at it. And so we picked uh, an attorney on the outside who was very, very good at this. He was not a New York attorney. He's kind of a scrappy guy. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so he said to, to uh, my product manager and myself, I'm not going to run the case. You're going to run the case, but I'm going to help you. I said, you're going to do what? We're going to do what? <laughs> I've never done that before. He says, no, you're going to run the case. I'll just tell you what to do. I said, why? He said, because when you go up in front of the ITC, International Trade Commission, uh, they're going to give you guys a lot of leeway if you violate courtroom protocol because you're just a bunch of guys trying to help save your business from these international guys that are stealing your business through dumping. But if, if I present the case, they're going to hold me and the other side very accountable to mm. strict protocol. And you're going to be much better off. You guys are capable of doing this. You can do this. <laughs> and so I said, okay. And we did this. We spent six months talking with the ITC staff. We got to know these guys really well. We gave him a ton of data on the marketplace. And one thing was, was really important. Whenever we found out that we had given him a wrong piece of information, we immediately corrected it. So we developed a huge credibility with these guys so they could trust what we were saying. They knew we weren't lying because we corrected a lot. Even if it was not in our favor, we just corrected what we sent them. And so I'm sure they talked with the five commissioners. And I said, you know, these guys are pretty honest about what they do. So we're in the courtroom in Washington. And we're running the case, and the other side's attorney puts one of their principals up on the stand, and he testifies to a meeting that they requested with us. Um, and he said that we, our company, uh, suggested we do something that's anti-competitive. I, and I'm, I almost blew up at the table. I said to our attorney, that's not true. I have meeting notes of that meeting. He said, dig them out. So I have this huge <laughs> box of paper, and I'm digging, and I find it, and I give, it, I, I give him the meeting notes, and he smile, uh, a smile crosses his face, and he interrupts the other side. He says, Madam, Madam, um, Madam Chair, 
Uh, my client has meeting notes of that meeting. She says, well, I'd like to see them. She, she turns to the other, to, to the guy on the stand, do you have meeting notes? No. So let's see your meeting notes. Oh. So she, she's reading it and she smiles and is laughing. <laughs> and she says to her assistant, I want f- f- uh, four other copies, four copies for my colleagues up here. And that set the case. That showed that they were lying on the stand. And in fact, he could have been arrested because, uh, and, and charged with uh, perjury because mm-hmm. we were all under oath. Well, two weeks later, my product manager and I take the train down to Washington, and we're in the room, and they announced the decision, 5-0 in our favor. Wow. They assigned the highest dumping duty, highest dumping duty for any chemical ever imported into the United States. Wow. And it lasted for at least 20 years. I'm not sure it's still, it's still in place. And we learned a couple things. We were mm-hmm. so far out of our comfort zone doing all of this. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're business guys. We sell to the market. Yeah. Uh, I'm not used to being in court. Yeah, right. And, and, and testifying, presenting data and, and evidence. And I'm coming back and I'm thinking, well, guess what? Look what we learned. Mm-hmm. We can now do this stuff. And we can do a lot more because we've just proven to ourselves that we were successful getting out of our comfort zone. Mm. So great. Stan, such a great story. So um, I want to dig a little bit into this. Did, um, when you first heard the news that you were going to do this, did you have any of what I and maybe other listeners might have had in their heads, any negative thoughts like, about, about, about doing it? About like, doing how it? could I do this? Who am oh. I to do this? Well, no, I thought about, well, no, I didn't think that. I mean, I had no problem at all suing them in, in the court of, or the international, in front of the International Trade Commission. I started to feel bad when I found out I was going to run the case. Well, that's what I mean. When yeah. you're running the case, not the suing, but the running the case. Well, I've never done that before. And I was, you know, I think I was 32 years old. Mm-hmm. And I've never really pushed out of my comfort zone so much. Um, and it's a real lesson that you have to do that. You have to take advantage of every opportunity that comes your way. You'll learn, you'll fail, you'll get up and do it again, but you got to do this. And I, I address the College of Medicine graduating class at Drexel every year, and I give them that message when I talk to them. So I don't talk to them about fluff. I talk to them about real stuff. <laughs> real stuff. No, I never write fluff or talk about fluff, ever. <laughs> and I, I say, you've got to get out of your comfort zone and take a risk. All right. So, Stan, so um, this is great. And I'm, I'm going to tell you that uh, we have some wonderful colleagues here at Penn, and they are in the... Um, Department of Psychology and well-known for their pioneering work on positive psychology. They're led by Dr. Martin Seligman, Marty as he is known. And one of his uh, protégés, Karen Rivich, has a wonderful, I'm going to call it an acronym, a way of thinking about battling those negative thoughts that you have in your head. You may not suffer from this <laughs> as much as the rest of us, but I'm just for the listener's sake and my own, I'm going to rattle through some of those ways to battle those negative thoughts. One, and it goes by an acronym I'm going to call CREPE, C-R-E-P, all right? So C, control. Just to talk to yourself, all right, what do you control here? <laughs> you know, and you had meeting notes, for example, you know, so you controlled some of the data. That's, num- that's I'm going to skip to E, evidence. What data do you have at hand that you can use to kind of counter these negative thoughts? Another is 
are to reframe. And I think that that's what your, you know, the lawyer did for you by saying, look, if I go up front there, they're going to nail me on all the legal protocol. But if you go up, you're just a bunch of business guys <laughs> trying to save your company. So by reframing it, you gave, you know, gives you a little chance of thinking, okay, hey, I can do this. And then the last one is P, to kind of plan and imagine, okay, if we go down this path and things are going a little south, how can we change route and maybe redirect and go north? So for for myself and for listeners out there that may have more difficulty battling those negative thoughts, I think those can be some helpful tips. I, lo- I love the acronym CREEP. I just love that. And so you're going to recommend me her book because I want to read the book. But okay. you, you talk about control. Yeah. I think you always want to control your situation. You never want somebody else to control it, even if it's heading south and it's going to be real negative. Mm-hmm. You have to control. You control it so uh, you suffer the consequence that you want to suffer and not what somebody wants to uh, give you. So you always want to be in control. You talk about planning. Yeah. The most important lesson I ever learned, well, one of the most important lessons. <laughs> <laughs> I'm we lie. have a whole book full. Yeah, no, I know, I know. I know. It was taught to me by, by my freshman ROTC instructor at Drexel University. I was an 18-year-old kid, Captain Boyle. I can't recall his first name. <laughs> he said to us, Always remember the six P's. And what they are right. are prior planning prevents piss poor performance. <laughs> oh, that's great. <laughs> and it's the most important lesson in life because it kind of s- serves for the foundation of how you're going to move through life. That's you got to be prepared. Mm-hmm. And I just had the sense that I should document this meeting in meeting notes because we were in an adversarial position. Yeah. And I didn't know someday it would be meaningful, but it won the case and it just blew them out of the water. Yeah, actually, so just blew them out of the water, and so you got to do these little things, which kind of you got to get a sense for what will help you, and that's part of emotional intelligence. Yes, true enough. All right, let me remind listeners: you're listening to Leadership in Action on Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132. I'm Ann Greenhall here in studio, live speaking with Stan Silverman, author of his new book, "Be Different: The Key to Business and Career Success." All right, Stan, we're in the last quarter of our interview together, our conversation together. So I'm going to pivot a little bit here. And, you know, it's always it's always an honor and a treat and a delight to have a CEO in you know in studio. So can you talk a little bit of about your experience as CEO and maybe what what was most surprising to you when now here you are, you're in that in the leadership chair in the, you know, it, metaphorically speaking, in the in the corner office? What was most surprising to you? Actually, it was the uh, the willingness of my board members <clears throat> to talk offline and give me advice. And I took advantage of that um, between board meetings, which, of course, are quarterly. I would probably meet with one or two board members for lunch, maybe three out of our eight and just ask them their advice and let them know where we're going and just just see what try to get out of my paradigms because you always want to break paradigms i mean that's another Mm -hmm. hour discussion but they'll help you break your paradigms and so um they would give great advice Um, and my relationship with my board i think was very very good for this reason okay we never held it we were very transparent with the board Uh very transparent 
we had a problem, we would tell the board, we have a problem, but you never tell the board you have a problem without telling them what you're going to do to fix it. Yeah. And it's a two-minute conversation. Well, okay, uh, let us know what happens at the next meeting. Give us a status update. Glad you're working on it. Because mm-hmm. they know bad stuff happens all the time. Right. The measure of a CEO is, and, and their team is, what are they going to do to ameliorate the bad stuff and fix it, get back on track? You try to... P- you try to pass bad, or you try to pass over bad stuff and blow stuff at them. It becomes they smell that, they sense it. It's a two-hour conversation, which is not very com- comfortable for the CEO. Right. So just tell them like it is. Mm-hmm. And I've been on boards where CEOs have tried to blow past stuff past us, and believe me, we can sense that. Mm-hmm. And then we kind of dig in, and it's not very good. So just tell them what you think. Tell them what's going on. Tell them where the problems are. And they'll say, okay, let's see what happens. How are you going to fix it? Yeah, so good. So would you, would you, uh, I really like the idea of, you're talking about building relationship with the members of the, of the board and having conversations that are off, you know, off, not scheduled, but impromptu conversations. Um, What other tips might you have to listeners on how to best manage the board? Be transparent. Come to the board to the board with problems. Come with solutions. Right. Be prepared to answer their questions. Even some of them may be way off uh, at times. And this didn't happen to me too often as a CEO because I had very very accomplished board members. But I see it, especially on nonprofit boards. Board members tend to get into the operation. Our job is as board members, is the governance stuff. It's right. worrying about reputation. It's worrying about making sure that we, uh, we abide by the, the, the rules of, of, um, of the corporation in terms of, corporate go- in, in terms of uh, audits and in mm-hmm. terms of being a good corporate citizen. But the CEO has to have the ability to operate their business. Mm-hmm. And I could ask for an opinion. I could ask eight board members for an opinion. I might get eight different answers or mm-hmm. eight different thoughts and I say, thank you very much, but I need to make the decision. I can't do everything you wanted to say, and I'm not going to do it in any way. I'm going to do what I think is best. Measure me for my result. And if I do enough stuff bad, get somebody else. Yeah. And so you need, you need to sometimes put a – very gently put a board member in their place and say, hey, this is an operational issue. I'll keep you up to date. I'll keep you informed. But this is the way I think I need to move forward, even though it's not exactly the way you, you may think it is. They don't work there. The board members don't work there. Right. The management does every day. So they don't have the knowledge that the management has. And the board has to trust the CEO. If the board ever loses the trust Mm. of the CEO, it's time to get a new one. Mm. So now, would you be able to give an example of maybe one of the tough problems you had to bring to a board and how you went about um, educating the board and having them continue to have confidence in you and your decision making? So during the first year of my CEO ship, we had to fix the base. We had a lot of things wrong. Uh, we faced a huge. We, we faced a loss of nine million of our twenty-three million dollars of uh, of income because mm-hmm. our largest uh, competitor, our largest customer, didn't like our pricing. And had we not driven the pricing down, we would have lost uh, the business to competition. Mm-hmm. Uh, if we lost a business, we'd have to write down the plants, and we couldn't. Afford, we'd be in, in violation of covenants, and so we took care of that in the first year. The second year, I said, "I want to start doing uh, acquisitions," and they said, "Okay, but before you do that, we want you and your team to look at the last twenty-five acquisitions over the past fifteen to twenty years 
tell us what went right. Tell us what went wrong. Tell us what you would do differently. Tell us what you learned. And I kind of looked at him. I said, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> because a lot of it was documented, but a lot of it wasn't. I mean, it was gone. It was lost. And they said, well, you know, you and your team have been here a long time. You can probably, you probably know. So we did exactly that. And it was the best exercise that they put me through, even though I didn't like to do it. Mm-hmm. And because of that, during my the subsequent four years, we made seven acquisitions, all accretive, and it helped drive the earnings from 14 to $43 million, only because they forced mm-hmm. us to learn from the past. <laughs> and I didn't want to take the time to do that, Yeah, but I'm so glad that they did. Yeah. And what did you learn when you looked at those last 25 acquisitions? What, jump, what patterns jumped out for you? Um, the patterns, well, the patterns are this. Number one, you want to you want to make an acquisition in your business. You want to you want to have knowledge of what's going on. So, of course, the, the the least risky thing is to make bolt-on acquisitions around the world in your business. The next one is to make acquisitions via adjacencies. That raises the risk. The next one up <laughs> is we would as yeah. a chemical company we would buy a hotel business. Which right. you know if they wanted to do that, they need to get somebody else to run the company, not me. Mm-hmm. So I learned to stick within our. Uh, our core yeah. to reduce risk. And the result was there. Re- re- the result was there. Very good. All right. So now you're on boards and you're looking at senior management, CEOs. Any words to the wise from, from the position of being on a board as opposed to being the CEO working with boards? Get to know the direct reports of the CEO. Ah. So you can assess their capabilities uh, in case the CEO gets hit by a bus. You know, who's capable of stepping in when the mm-hmm. CEO recommends two or three people as their successor? You need to make your own decision. Mm-hmm. So you want to get to know them. You want to get to know their business, get to know them. And um, by doing that, you can also help them develop because you give them hints on maybe what they need to think about doing. Yeah, so good. Now, Stan, I've heard others, uh, other members of boards say this, and I'm going to ask you a similar question, same question I've asked them. How do you do that without end running or undermining the CEO? Well, the CEO has to be on board with it. Okay. You want to really be worried when the CEO doesn't want you to yeah. talk with their direct reports. Right. That is a bad, bad, sign. bad, bad <laughs> sign. And then you have to kind of deal with that with the CEO. But every time you talk with one of their people, you report back and you expect them to report back what the conversation mm-hmm. was about so the CEO doesn't feel like they're being left out of the loop. But they should suspect, expect mm-hmm. that board members are going to talk. And I, I encouraged my people. Yeah. When we went into board meetings, I didn't rehearse what my people would say in front of the board. I trusted they would say the right thing. There's too many CEOs that rehearse their, their direct reports, like, mm-hmm. what do you want to tell the board? What are you going to yeah. tell them? Right. I no. said, hey, tell them what you want to tell them. Just be truthful, and we'll handle it. We'll support you in the, in the board meeting. And, and so I was very transparent because, number one, it wastes time. It takes time away from them running their business. Yeah. You have to rehearse them. Right. I'm not going to rehearse them. Right. <laughs> I have trust in them. I have trust in the board that this will, will work out okay. So great. <laughs> All right. Well, Stan, we're coming around the corner here, and I just want to give uh, give a little bit of an opportunity first to ask you about yourself. You know, when I work with Wharton undergrads or MBAs, a number of them have aspiration to be CEO. So what what advice might you give a young person coming up if they have that aspiration? I only had two goals in life. When I graduated, I wanted to be a business unit manager so I could run a P&L. I didn't have CEOs in my sights. When I, be, when I got that job, when I was president of a Canadian company, I immediately felt I could be the CEO. So I had two goals in life, no timetable. 
I just knew the direction I need to move forward in, and I achieved what I wanted to achieve. And so I would uh, give everybody advice that, number one, within a year of your first job, especially coming out of Wharton, you're not going to become the CEO or the CFO. Right. You got to pay your dues. You got to learn. You got to help other people succeed. And you have to build political and social capital by by doing that. And you have to generate results in the right way. Never throw anybody under the bus. Yeah. Ever, mm-hmm. ever, ever. Uh, mm-hmm. You do that, you're gone. And your reputation will follow you. And if you play it right, you'll move up. Mm-hmm. Okay. So um, you've got to learn along the way. You've got to play your dues and be careful to keep relationships for the short and the long and the very long term. Uh, when when you think about um, mentoring others, tell me a little bit about how you go about doing that now. Because now you're in a in a special position where you can give back in a variety of ways. Well, I'm glad you asked that. So writing my book was the start of my fourth career. So I'm on this earth for only for one reason, and that's help other people be successful. I've had a great career, and I mentor people all the time. I mentor a lot of college students. They show me their resumes. <laughs> I say, why is this resume different than the other 499 resumes that are going to be sent to Comcast for that one finance job? You have, to, you have to show that you're different so you get an interview. And so I help them. I help people every day through my writings at the Business Journal uh, right. on a lot of great subjects and through my book. And this is what I do. And my opinion is that, and of course, because I'm the, it's not only because I'm the author, I think every college student in the land should get a chance to read my book because I think will help it will help them be successful in their career. They can uh, buy it at BarnesandNoble.com. Yeah, yeah. They can buy it at Amazon. They can get the um, the Kindle version or the electronic mm-hmm. version on Amazon. However, it's best to read the book if you buy the electronic version. Read it on an iPad because then you get the sound and you get the colors and other other things that a uh, a Kindle can't deliver. But my job right now, till I die, is to help other people be successful. That's my mantra. That's my legacy that I want to leave this world with, help other people be successful. So great, Stan. Now, do you imagine putting together another book? I know you have a weekly column. (laughs) Well, I'd have to have the time to write it. I I had a carved time out, actually, to write this book. If I have something to say, I will write the book. And if I think people would be interested in reading what I have to say. So everybody wants to write a book. They say, yeah. oh, I have something to say. Right. Well, the other part is people won't have to read it. And that's true. And so if you can't have the second part without the first, sp- spend your time doing something else. Yeah. But now I know from uh, knowing you a little bit that your column is well read. And just share the two most uh, frequently well, appreciated topics on that column. I'm glad you asked that. And so I put my column out every week on... Um, uh, excuse me, on LinkedIn, I have 27,000 followers around the world and so and growing. And so I get the most reaction, the most reads, and the most hits when I write about the lack of trust within an organization and what do I do when I work for a tyrant. Oh, great. That now is, we're full circle. It's two or three <laughs> times the, the hit rate of all my other subjects. So, you know, this is on people's minds. Yeah. But also... It should tell every CEO that this is an issue within their company, whether they recognize it or not, and they better address it. Right. And just think how great companies could be if these two issues were addressed better. Yes. And in fact, I'll just go on an even slightly more expansive note. You know, 
in our organizations of all kinds, whether nonprofit, for-profit, governmental, you name it, the world would be a better place <laughs> with more trust and fewer tyrants. I agree. So, Stan, we have to call our time together to a close. It's been such a pleasure to talk with you, Stan Silverman, about your new book, Be Different, The Key to Business and Career Success. Thank, and thank you, Stan. you, Thank you very much for inviting me on your show. It's a pleasure always to speak with you <laughs> well, on, on air. Thank you. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 